Every Friday, millions across America get paid. Friday is typically payday. In the ancient world, payday was at the end of every day because most needed that money to eat. But our society has become so affluent that most can go one, two, even four weeks without getting paid. When you get your paycheck, though, where does it go? Our society may be wealthy, but it costs a lot to live here. According to 2020 consumer spending, all housing costs and transportation costs take up about 50% of the average income. Another 20% goes to insurance and health care. So already we're talking nearly three quarters of your income taken. The remaining 30% gets split between food, entertainment, clothes, education, savings, and, and then other. And this is all after the government has already taken a big chunk out of the pie to begin with. For the vast majority of people, though, you, you might notice that almost all of their income is spent on themselves. Within that other category of consumer spending, about 1% to 3% goes towards charitable giving. That includes alimony, so it's not always willing charitable giving. But Americans don't seem to give very much away. Yeah, sure, a lot of money is ripped away from you in the form of taxes, and a lot of that money goes to help the poor, and that's nice and all, but voluntarily, it's a different story. Now, you might think, I mean, if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you have a load of debt, how can you really just be giving money away? And that may be true. If only you had more money, if only you didn't have money problems, then you would give more away and help others in need. Maybe you've told yourself that before, and maybe you'd be the exception, but statistically, that's not the case. Other studies have shown that as people make more money, their percentage of charitable giving goes way down. In America, people making under $50,000 a year give the highest percentage of their income away. That rate steadily declines until the $1 million a year mark. And even the person who makes $10 million a year gives less a percentage of their wealth away than the person who makes 50000 a year. Just think about that, what it's like to get to the point where you're making $10 million a year, and somehow you justify spending almost all of that just on yourself. Why, why is it so hard to give our money away? Well, the more money you have, the more you get wooed by all the things money buys. And of course, money provides for your basic needs, food, water, clothing, shelter, you have to have all that stuff, but a little bit more money can seemingly buy a little more happiness, or nicer cars to be had, and bigger houses, better vacations. Money also buys security. I mean, what if something goes wrong? For these reasons, as people start to make more money, they come to rely on more money. And slowly but surely, a little altar to money can be set up in their hearts. And with each pay raise, they find themselves bowing down a little bit more and a little bit more. They start loving money. And for such people, it just doesn't serve them to give their money away. But this is why I think God is so very much concerned that we do give our money away. His word is filled with instructions for his people to, to give, to help those in need, to be generous, to be ready to share. Yet we're told to give freely and willingly, not grudgingly. That's because giving, while it is meant to immediately help meet the needs of others. It's more fundamentally an act of faith and therefore worship. Money, when you think about it, it's the ticket to everything your heart desires. And if you're living for self, well, of course you're going to be spending all your money on yourself. 
But when you come to faith in Christ, Christ becomes your Lord, your master. You live now to please him, to serve him. You don't live for self anymore. And so when you're freely giving your money away, you're displaying that. You're putting on display that he has your heart. You serve God, not wealth. For where your treasure is, or where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And as it pleases the Lord now that you give to help others, so now it pleases you to give to help others. This is not to say that money is evil or that you should not enjoy the fruit of your labors. You know, there's definitely a place for that, but as believers, we must not be captured by the love of money, which sits in competition with the love of God. Or as Jesus taught, you cannot serve God and wealth. You can't have two masters. Only one can be your Lord. We are those who must see to it that our hearts belong to God alone. Money makes an excellent tool, but a terrible master. So we must master it, not the other way around. Now, this is something we've been learning of late in the Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus confronts how we view and relate to wealth. That's where he says, <clears throat> Matthew six twenty four, <clears throat> no one can serve two masters. He says, you cannot serve God in wealth. Wealth, he uses the word for mammon, personifying wealth as a god. The god of wealth rules over the hearts of many people. But for us, no longer. We must see to it that we are viewing and using our wealth just as an instrument to seek God's purposes because we are those, Matthew 6, 33, we are those who aim to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Needless to say, the disciples' relationship to wealth is a massively important issue, one which we literally can't afford to get wrong. This is especially the case living in America which has to be the most affluent consumeristic society ever. Now, it's not my intention to preach again through these verses in Matthew 6. We, we've done that. We're ready to turn the corner into Matthew 7. But personally, I've been spurred on by the Lord's teaching to, to further reflect on how God expects us to relate to wealth. And I think we all could use that further consideration. So before moving on here in Matthew, I've decided to include a, a pair of messages, today being the second that we might springboard off of Christ's teaching and, and just further round out from Scripture how God expects us to relate to wealth. This is just a massive part of our daily lives. It, it merits further reflection and application. So last week we focused on the front end of this discussion, namely how God expects us to gain wealth. And the short answer to that is work. The God-ordained means by which we are to gain provision and even abundance from this world is just work. After the fall, work is hard, but it is still God's will for us. But being fallen ourselves, there are many ways in which we can get work wrong, leading to a whole host of human suffering. And so as believers especially, we need to see the nobility of work as the God-ordained means by which we gain what we need and, and more in this world while avoiding all of its pitfalls. That was the subject of our study last week. We don't have time to rehash that any further. But for today, I want to include one more study that might be even more important for us living in America. First, how God expects us to gain wealth. And here today, how God expects us to use wealth. 
Most come to gain some wealth, just defined as having an abundance of resources, more than you need to survive. Now, it wasn't really true in the ancient world and in many third world countries today. It's still not true, but in America, it seems like most have wealth. You've got full pantries and stocked wardrobes. You may not be a millionaire, but you still manage to have smart phones and smart TVs, smart cars, other luxury goods. Your, your income exceeds what you need to survive. All right, so like, now what? Does God place any expectations on us for what we are to do with all this wealth? Now that Jesus is our Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we have it as our ambition to be pleasing to him. That should be the goal of our lives now. We're, we're aiming to be pleasing to him. All right, so how do we relate to and use wealth in a manner that is pleasing to him? How do we display that Jesus is our Lord, our, our love, and not money? That's what we aim to find out this morning. And again, I think this subject is even more relevant to us Christians living in America. So let's open our hearts and our minds to see what God's word has to say about that. Our pursuit this morning, how God expects us to use wealth. How God expects us to use wealth. Now, before we get into the specifics of that instruction, we need to start off with the overall paradigm for how God expects us to relate to wealth. And in a word, that would be stewardship. Stewardship. And just to explain that really quick, God owns everything. Right? He made everything. He owns everything. We own nothing. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. We enter this world with nothing. We're going to leave this world with nothing. It all belongs to God. And, and all the good things we come to gain in this life, well, those too belong to God. They come from God. As Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer to that ultimately is nothing. In the end, we owe everything to God. And everything he has providentially provided for us comes with a purpose. He causes increase for a purpose. And that purpose gets us to this concept of stewardship. And we learned last week, the entire planet was given to mankind, not to own, but to steward for God's purposes. This is still true on an individual level. God our Heavenly Father has granted us time and talents, treasure and truth. And it is his will for us to steward all these things for his kingdom purposes. What is a steward? A steward or a trustee is one who is entrusted with the wealth or the assets of another. And then is tasked to manage all those assets according to the will of the owner. So if you go today on a tour of Hearst Castle and you meet a trustee, they don't own the place. Now, it's their job to ensure that it's maintained, to take care of it, to preserve it as a public landmark. They've got a job to do, but they don't own the place. And likewise, all people have been given not just wealth, but life and breath from God. They don't own anything, not even their own lives. Everyone's going to return to God and give an account for how they used their lives according to his purposes. Of course, those who persist in the rebellion are, are going to find judgment. But the believer who has submitted to Christ as Lord now earnestly seeks to live up to his or her stewardship. They want to be pleasing to their master. 
You see this stewardship paradigm come out in several of Christ's parables. For example, in Luke 19, the parable of the, the Minas. A nobleman goes away on a distant journey. He's going to return. But in the meantime, he calls 10 slaves, gives them each 10 minas, which back then is about 100 days wages. And he tasks them to do business with his wealth until he returns. He expects a return and he's going to hold them to account. He wants them to manage his resources well. You have the exact same situation, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25. Right, uh, The master's gone away on a journey. The slaves are entrusted with all of his assets. He will return and settle account, separating the wicked from the faithful. But the question is, who will be the, the faithful and sensible steward? Who will hear from the master when he returns? Matthew 25, 4, uh, 21, and a well-done, good and faithful slave. And as believers, we no longer fear the Lord's judgment at all. We've passed out of judgment into life in salvation. But now especially, we, we want to be pleasing to the one who has redeemed us. So you should be driven by this inner desire just to be found faithful. And that should lead you to, to use everything the Lord has entrusted to you for his purposes. And so this has massive implications for how we steward truth, the truth of the gospel that's been entrusted to us. And time, all the days of our lives, our talents, our spiritual gifts, these are all things we're called explicitly to steward in Scripture. But for our time this morning, we want to focus in on our stewardship of our, our treasure, our wealth that we gain in God's providence. How do we gain wealth? Directly through work, like we learned last week. But even as you work, don't, don't be mistaken so as to think you, you earned your paycheck by yourself. It still comes from God's hand. Do not be so arrogant as to think that you, you gained all of your wealth by your own strength, your own hand. You don't want to pray snidely as Jimmy Stewart did in this old movie called Shenandoah, where begrudgingly he's forced to pray for su- supper. And he says this, quote, Dear Lord, thank you for this meal. We plowed the ground. We planted the seed. We pulled the weeds. We harvested the wheat. We ground the flour. We baked the bread. But thank you, Lord, for this meal. That is how the non-Christian sees this world and sees wealth. But we see things differently. Recognizing, yes, we're called to work, but it is still God who gives life and breath, strength, environment, opportunity, you name it. Apart from him, we would never prosper. And so just as God reminded Israel in Deuteronomy 8, 18, It is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. You can take the power away real quick, but it's he who gives you the power to make wealth. Therefore, you should never say, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. No, all wealth ultimately comes from God. Therefore, it's all to be used or stewarded according to his purposes because we're not owners. All has been given to us on loan from the creator, we'll give an account for how we used it. So how are you using your wealth? It's not up to the steward to spend money according to his or her will, but rather to ask and consider what would my master have me do with this wealth? We all need to think of money more like this. When parents go to a store with their kids and when their kids see a toy, they inevitably ask, can we buy this? And parents have a default response, 
to get out of it and say like, no, we can't afford that. No, we can't afford that. It's easy out just to say no and move on. But when you think about it, doesn't that send a message to the kids? It is as if to say in this family, the money does the talking. Money makes decisions in this family. Money calls the shots. But wait, like is money the master? I thought money was the tool, the instrument. Instead, shouldn't we be saying and asking, you know, would this spending glorify God? How can we steward his resources according to his purposes? My trust you can see the only way we're going to use wealth rightly is if we think of wealth rightly. And we have to start here, understanding who we are fundamentally as stewards. We cannot forget our role as stewards. We're not owners. We're trustees of our lives, everything that includes our wealth. As God causes increase just from our basic provision to abundance, we're to steward it all according to his purposes, not our own. All right, now with this in mind, we can ask now, what are some of those purposes? What has he revealed in his word about how he expects us to use to steward this wealth? What has he said? Well, I'm going to share with you now five big areas in which God expects us to use our wealth. Five big areas in which God expects us to use our wealth. Legitimate ways we can use wealth as stewards to the glory of God. Let's go through these. First, so we'll be hopping all over the place. First will be yourself. Not wrong to spend some of your wealth on yourself. We're going to spend a lot of time exploring how God wants us to use our wealth to care for others, of course. But it's worth stating it's not wrong to care for yourself. In fact, God says you must care for yourself. We learned last week from 2 Thessalonians 3.12, where Paul strongly commanded and exhorted the church to work in quiet fashion, eat your own bread. You work hard, you feed yourself. You're not to be a dependent. You work, you feed yourself. You take care of yourself. Likewise, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 says this. He calls them to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. It's the same message. You work hard with your own hands and then you take care of your needs so that you are not in any need. Christians especially, we are to be a blessing on society, not a burden. Now, taking one step further, it's, it's not even wrong to use some of your wealth for you know, honest pleasure and enjoyment. I mean, enjoying the fruit of one's labor is actually a, a, a good gift from God in a fallen and hard world. This lesson comes readily out of Ecclesiastes. When you live hedonistically where you're trying to satisfy your every desire, you're spending all on your pleasures, that's when you find vanity and frustration, futility, chasing after the wind. That's what Solomon found in Ecclesiastes 2 when he was using all of his wealth just purely hedonistically. But for the one who fears God and is serving God and who seeks to use his wealth for God and realizes it's a gift from God, that's when you find that Your wealth, the fruit of your labor, can provide you genuine, good enjoyment. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19. He says later, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during his few years of life, 
which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. You have to maintain the right balanced perspective on your wealth. You're not meant to use all of your wealth selfishly, hoarding it all for your own interests and pleasures. But on the other side, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And as you work, as you prosper, God makes allowance for his stewards to enjoy some of the fruit of their labor as a respite, as rest, as relief in a fallen, very hard, <clears throat> short world. When, <clears throat> when done with thankfulness and without greed, you can spend some of your wealth on yourself to the glory of God, giving thanks for the gifts you receive from his hands. Now, this must by no means be the only way you spend your mouth, uh, wealth, but this is still a first legitimate way God expects us to spend, to take care of ourselves, and even to enjoy the fruit of our labor. But let's carry on. Secondly, uh, your family. Secondly, your family. You can turn to First Timothy 5 if you want to follow along in a minute here. First Timothy 5. There are many people who cannot provide for themselves for many reasons. One of those reasons is age. Some are too young, some are too old, and they just can't work. They can't work hard and eat the bread of their own hands. Something has interfered. And so what are they to do? Well, in such cases, the first divinely ordained means of provision for them is their family. God expects you to use some of your wealth to provide for the needs of the dependents in your household. On the young end, this means children. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, Paul says, Children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Speaking of little ones. He's drawing an analogy from this point, but the case stands that it's the duty of parents to provide for all the needs of their little ones. that They can't work and provide for themselves. The same goes for dependents who are on the older end. This is in 1 Timothy 5, 8. If you're there, you can look at 1 Timothy 5, 8. He says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The context here has to do with aging parents, specifically widows. Just think of the older widow in the ancient world. I mean, she's doomed. How is she going to survive? She can't work the field. She has no trade. She has no wealth, no provision. I mean, just immense suffering and starvation were possible. Later, Paul gives instructions, therefore, how the church should step in and care for these widows indeed, but only after their, their, uh, her family takes care of her first. Only if she has no family to care for her should the church step in. Look at verses 3 and 4, 1 Timothy 5. He says, honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Some of you have aging parents and praise God if they're already taken care, taken care of. I mean, in our wealthy society, we have pensions and retirement funds and social security and, and great if they're taken care of. But if not, 
Now, no, it is good and acceptable in God's eyes for you to return some of the sacrifice they made in raising you and to take care of their, their needs. Your kids don't need iPhones and your parents don't need mansions, but God expects you to just generally support them to live a life of dignity, meeting their needs as you're able. Now, a third way God expects us to use wealth would be the state. The state. Now, just briefly mention that, yes, it is, it is God's will for you to use some of your wealth to support the state via taxes. Now, granted, you might not have much of a say in this matter. It's not like this is a choice or willful giving. But Christians don't find any ready excuses for dodging taxes. When you have Paul saying things like Romans thirteen seven, Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. And then you have Jesus saying, Luke 20, 25, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Both were answering questions about, should we pay taxes to this wicked Roman empire? And both Paul and Jesus affirm, yes, you should. There's no perfect or righteous government, but it is still a divinely ordained means and institution for resisting evil. Suffice it to say, you may not always be happy about it, but you are operating within God's expectations when you use some of your wealth, even if it's not by choice, to support the state via taxes. You can do that with a ready and easy conscience as much as you are made to pay. Now, I would say more importantly, number four, the church. It is also expected that you will use some of your wealth to support church ministry. Now, the difference is this support must not be compulsory like taxes. The church today is not theocratic Israel. So the the tithing commands of the Old Testament of the law of Moses do not apply to the church. The the tithes for Israel function, function much more like their taxes. As for them, church and state were almost the same thing. That is not the case for the new covenant church. We're not going to go further into that, but back in the Matthew 6, 2 through 4 sermon, we we fully explored the notion of tithing. But that doesn't mean God no longer expects his people to not give to his work. Just the opposite. Uh, The New Testament is filled with exhortations for believers to give. It is clear, though, this giving is not meant to be an obligation. New Testament giving in the church today is, is far more parallel to the Old Testament free will offering. That was just as you will, as your heart is moved, give the free will offering. God wants to see the hearts of his people just so overwhelmed by love for him that they're just happy to generously share with with needs, to give to his kingdom purposes. Just like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 of their giving. He says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. But at the same time, Paul reminds them in the verse before, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. At every turn, we are directed to give, not grudgingly, but still generously, freely. And that is what pleases God. Now when it comes to Church giving, it it has a purpose in mind. It is meant to meet certain needs. We give to the church for a purpose, not duty, not obligation, not guilt, but to meet certain needs. What are some of those needs? 
Well, one big need, if you're still in 1 Timothy 5, is the support of full-time elder pastors, that they might devote all of their time to the work of the ministry. This comes right out of 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, where Paul says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The church is better served if those elder pastors who excel at teaching and preaching can devote all of their time to the ministry of the word and not worry about their next paycheck. That is what Paul is saying. And it makes perfect sense because in all disciplines, we, we get a lot of value from specialists. Just think about medicine. We, we don't have the time or the money to all become heart surgeons to learn about heart surgery no, we need people who are willing to go to school, study for a decade, practice a lot, and become experts in heart surgery. And when the day comes we need heart surgery, we will pay them a lot happily because we need them as specialists to do what we cannot do for ourselves in many respects. And spiritually, the church is well served to have specialists in the word of God, men who have studied it, know it, and can exposit it. We're all called to feed ourselves, and you must feed yourself daily, but you still go out to eat, and you value a good chef every once in a while to feed you a a meal you just wouldn't make yourself. And spiritually, uh, we need this. This is one big need for our church giving. Related to that would be supporting non-local pastors and evangelists, i.e. missionaries. There are others who are uniquely gifted in evangelism and church planting. And they're ready and willing to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The church should similarly support them that they might use their gifts full time. This is exactly what the Philippian church did with Paul. We're reading earlier this morning in Philippians 4 in that chapter. In early, Paul was a tent maker, which means he supported himself on the mission field. He would work as a tent maker and then church plant and preach on the side. But the Philippian church was among those who realized this is crazy. Like Paul's ministry effectiveness would explode if he could just be supported full-time and not not have to work. That is better. And so he says in Philippians 4, more than once they gave to support his needs during his missionary journeys. And, And no one made them do this. No one even told them to do this. They were not under compulsion, but they serve as an example of cheerful, willing, just a love offering. And that type of giving is what pleases God. And as stewards, that's what we're talking about here, right? It's what we're discussing, how we are to use our money in a way that pleases God. We should be happy to spend some of our hard-earned money, not just on our pleasures, but also to contribute to the spread of Christ's gospel at home, in our local church, and abroad. Now, there's a third big need our church giving is meant to address. That is to support church members who are in dire need. But this giving also finds application outside the church. So we can just separate this out as a fifth big area in which God expects us to use our wealth. And that would be the needy. Yourself, your family, the state, the church. Now fifth, a fifth big category in which God expects us to use our wealth is the needy. To help others around us in need. Let's clarify this. Let's explore this. And first, who are the needy? By needy, we're simply referring to people who need help to live. Not to live large, but but to live with dignity. 
We're talking about food, clothing, shelter. You could very well add providing work, providing opportunity. We're not told to create a class of dependents, but to help others grow and, and serve and work and take care of themselves. But some people just need help to live. They are, we might say, the needy. What makes people needy? How do they get into such a state? Well, there are a variety of reasons. We learn that God's ordained means of provision in this world is work. But this is a fallen world, and we too are fallen. That will hit people differently. Some become just physically unable to work and provide for themselves. Disease, disability, injury, accidents. Bodies break down in a fallen world, and some just are not able to to do that work, to care for their own needs. What are they to do? The curse also affects our ability to derive sustenance from creation, which itself is cursed. So no matter how healthy you are and how hard you work that field, what are you going to do about drought or famine or blight or disease or insects or fire, earthquakes, you name it. And then, of course, many people become needy because man is fallen too. And so much poverty is sin-derived. I mean, every nation in every age has been marked by some sort of unjust gain, where through corruption, exploitation, theft, the rich take advantage and treat poorly the poor. Every nation. Then you have things like outright war as an injustice. Now, how many hard workers, for example, in Ukraine have nothing, no fault of their own, they're just caught in a war. Now they're in need. It's not because they're lazy. I'm sure the sin-stained socioeconomic reasons for poverty are vast and complex, more than we can handle right now. But do you know what's simple? Just seeing your fellow man in need of food or clothing or covering, and you have more than enough means, and so you provide for him or her. That, that is simple. And that is something God expects of us, is it not? No one is saying you must become impoverished to help the poor, and no one is saying you must bankroll the one who is unwilling to work, able but refusing to work. No, but when you see someone without the means to survive, and you have more than enough, shouldn't you do something? Yes, you should. Again, as uh, application, the law of Moses was chock full of commands for national Israel living the land to take care of the poor in their midst. And they're all over the place, the amount of generosity in the law of Moses. A perfect summary, though, is Deuteronomy 15.11, where it says, The poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Again, we're not under the law of Moses, but it still reflects God's heart toward the poor and how we are to help them. That expectation is made explicit like everywhere in the New Testament. For example, James 2, 15, 16. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? The answer is obviously, it's no use. It's worthless. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't we already hear from the Lord himself on this issue? The beginning of Matthew 6, he teaches on giving, and he instructs his disciples about when they give to the poor. We made a point to state the obvious. Jesus, on purpose, does not say, if you give to the poor. 
He says to his disciples, when you give to the poor, because the expectation was a given. Of course, his disciples are going to give to the poor. That's not a question. The only thing Jesus wanted to stress was that they give not to be seen and praised by man, but to help others and glorify God. That expectation remains for us. When anyone in need crosses your path, do not harden your heart against them. Just open your heart and help them. Now, it is worth pointing out how the lion's share of verses on giving in the New Testament have to do with meeting needs within the body of Christ. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of the faith. It's not exclusive, but it is emphasized that we give, especially to help those in the body of Christ who are suffering. You see this on display in Acts chapter 4. Thousands of Jews had just come to salvation in Jerusalem, but most of them were homeless. Why? Well, they only were in Jerusalem for the feast, but they hear the preaching of Peter, they get converted. They don't want to go back home. They want to stay, sit under the apostles, learn more, fellowship with this new thing called the church. But it created a humanitarian crisis. Who is going to feed, clothe, and house all these nomadic Christians? The answer is Acts 4, 32, 35. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Verse 34, For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, this is not a command for us to sell everything, have communal property, and equalize our wealth. But it is a good example of what is good and right in the church. That those who have means care for the needs of those who don't. And they should do so happily, freely. No one told them, no one made them, just because they wanted to. Because they love the Lord and their fellow brother and sister. Above all, it was those Macedonian churches who give us the greatest example of the type of giving to the needy we're talking about here. The Jerusalem church remained impoverished for a long time, being heavily persecuted. And so Paul, on his missionary journeys, he, would, he took up a special collection for them to just meet the needs of the, the dirt, poor, starving saints in Jerusalem. Which, by the way, gives us precedent to help the needy who are not just in our backyard, This was overseas giving in the early church. But as he writes to the Corinthians, he praises the Macedonians for how they gave. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 through 4. He says of the Macedonians, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. These these people weren't rich. They themselves were poor. But they still gave freely, free from guilt or coercion. But with joy, they believed it was a favor. Like, you're doing me a favor to be able to support the saints in Jerusalem. Giving like this we would easily say it's to be one of the most pleasing things to the Heavenly Father because it's such an act of faith. 
and coming from joy, that's the joy of salvation. Jesus likewise said in Matthew 26, 11, he said, you will always have the poor with you. Nothing's changed from the Old Testament to new to today. Despite all our affluence, it's still true. The poor, the needy, they're still in our midst. And so God's expectations have not changed. You are to use some of your wealth to help the needy. The application of that expectation is something you all have to flesh out on your own. Just as Paul very carefully refused to impose any obligation on the churches, we likewise are not to impose strict laws or requirements on believers resorting to a type of legalism. Some want this. Some like rules because it just makes it all easier in their mind. They might say like, just tell me, like, how much of my wealth can I spend on myself and how much do I have to give away? Just, just tell me. Give me the number. Is it 10%? I'll write the check. Just tell me so I don't have to think about it anymore. But the giving we're talking about doesn't work like that. It should not work like that because this is not a task. It's not compulsory. It's not guilt-driven. This should be worship. It's driven by a heart of love for the Lord that turns into compassion for the needy. That's just happy to spontaneously meet needs as they arrive and as the Lord causes you increase. We've learned it. It's not wrong to spend on yourself to enjoy the fruit of your labor. That can be God's gift in a hard world. But I think it's fair to say that as Christians especially, we should outpace our society's meager 1% to 2% income on charitable giving. At the least, right? But those who get this, who just are willing to deny some of their pleasures just to meet the needs of others, they find true what Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It really is. They find a deeper joy in helping others more than just buying more and more stuff for themselves. And I can't bind your conscience, but I can challenge you and me to be further stretched This is where we need to be stretched the most, I believe. I don't think any of us need to be convinced to spend more of our wealth on ourselves or even our family, the state, even the church. At least at this local church, our needs are met by your all faithful giving. You're all already like the Philippians and Macedonians. You give generously to support the needs of this church. And so by no means is this sermon a plea for you to give more to this church. Rather, I would have you most consider both in the church and out how you are contributing to help the needy. Practically, some find it best to give to the church's benevolence fund, trusting the elders to disperse the funds to the needy members as needs arise. We deal with emergencies and help all the time. That's something we do. But by all means, feel free to cut out the middleman. If you see a brother or sister in the pew next to you with the dire need, you just, you help them yourself on a personal level. Whatever you do, just don't close your heart to the poor and needy. As you have means, just be stretched to share the love of Christ with them, with the gospel and a helping hand. It's been said that we're never more like God than when we give. That sounds about right, because it was God who gave first to us. He gave us his only begotten son to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And if you've received that love by faith and have been transformed by it, it should elicit from you now a a similar love for others, especially the the needy, the lost. Leave it to John, the apostle of love, to connect those dots for us in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Then he says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And probably for the majority of us here, the Lord has caused increase. We have wealth, a type of wealth, even much wealth. And that's not wrong. We found last week, there's a right way to gain wealth. We've learned today, there's a right way to use that wealth. Make sure you're using it well. Remembering that none of it belongs to us. We're not owners following Christ. We're merely stewards. We'll give an account for all aspects of our life. And so may you please and honor the Lord by what you do with your wealth. Use your wealth in such a way that you're still seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Use your wealth in such a way that you are displaying God, not money, is your master. And use your wealth in such a way that on the last day, you'll hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Our great God, that is our desire to be pleasing to you, to our Lord and Savior Christ, to steward our lives, our days, our energy, and our treasure, our wealth. Uh, for your purposes. Your word guides us. It tells you what to expect. And that's what we want to know. What is the will of our father in heaven? We've come to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. We're now seeking first that kingdom and your righteousness lived out in us and in the world. And that has a lot to do with, with our money, with our wealth. It can easily capture our heart, our affections. The flesh can get a hold of it and warp it into a root of all sorts of evil. But we pray you guard our hearts from the love of money. Give us the love of Christ more by the power of the Spirit to just love our Savior, to be content in him, as we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And when we find that secret of contentment and gratitude, we're just thankful for all we have in Christ. And that's when we're able to be generous, to give, and to honor you and how we spend. So convict us this morning. We need the conviction from your word. Let it turn into change and, uh, and worship, that we can live worshipfully, give worshipfully, not just at church, but just in all aspects of our lives, that we're using all our means for your kingdom. And be with us in that effort. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.